0: Dear brothers and sisters, we have this morning a man to preach to us, R.C. Jr., and uh, he, he is this, this man right here. This is R.C., his, his daughter Darby is not feeling well and is laying down in, in an office, so I'm sorry I can't introduce her to you, but it's been very sweet to see the love of this daughter for her dad and the way that she anticipates every word that comes out of his mouth, which my children will understand. Arce is here because we have a lot of respect for him, and he gives us joy as we watch his work around the country. Recently, the men in the Pastors College have been studying uh, what Scripture says about the officers of the church. And one of the things that uh, Calvin says about this is that the officers of the church include the office of pastor or shepherd who cares for the sheep, but also an office of teacher. And Calvin says that it's rare that you have in one man both the office of shepherd and the office of teacher. Very interesting comment. Well, it's my observation that RC is both a pastor and a teacher. And that he speaks to our hearts and not simply our brain. And I trust that by God's spirit that you will give him your hearts and that we will go from this place changed because of his proclaiming of the word of God. So give him your hearts.
1: grateful for that warm and gracious invitation though it does seem to add more pressure to one to do well uh, in one's preaching but i'm grateful for that i'm especially grateful for tim and for the elders here for the opportunity to be here and also for the encouragement that i receive in being here getting to know some of you and seeing uh, the great and powerful things that god is doing in this congregation Uh, I pray and trust that much of this great things that God is doing, He does through the power of the Word preached. And so I'm privileged to participate in that ministry today. If you would please stand as I read this morning's text. Our text this morning is found in the Gospel of John. I'll be reading from chapter 20, uh, verses 24 through 29. Now hear the word of God. Now Thomas called the twin. One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst of them and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing." And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Beloved, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please pray with me. Our good and gracious Father, we ask this morning that you would be pleased to send your Spirit among us. That he would take this, your word, and wield it as a two-edged sword. That by the foolishness of preaching, we would have cut away from us all that is displeasing in your sight. And that we would be remade. That we might better reflect the image of your Son, the express image of your glory. And Father, we ask this in his precious and powerful name. Amen. Please be seated. My task this morning is to speak with you all something about the relationship between God's sovereignty and our experience of suffering. And I do so grateful to be among a congregation where I do not have the preliminary task of trying to persuade you that there actually is a relationship between God's sovereignty and our suffering. That is, I am persuaded that all of you here already understand what God himself says in Isaiah chapter 45, where he declares, not sheepishly, but with great pride. in speaking to the great King Cyrus, God says of himself, I create darkness, I create light, I create peace, and I create calamity. I, the Lord, do these things. God is not ashamed of how close he is to our experiences of calamity, our experiences of suffering. So when we come to the question, we need to come not fearful, not not trying to, to protect God and his reputation among the heathen, whereby we say, well, now I know you've had some unpleasant days, but I want you to, I want to tell you about my God, but I want you to know he's got nothing to do with the hardships you've been through. It's not God's perspective. It should not be our perspective. We should not allow ourselves to be held hostage our own emotions. That when we come to these difficult questions, we are supposed to go look at what the Bible says, and we are to believe it. In fact, when my father was a young man studying in seminary, he very wisely, for such a young man, placed there in his study where he would prepare his sermons a three-by-five card on which he had written these words, your duty is to preach what the Bible says, not what you wish it said. That's our obligation. We're to submit to the Word of God. What it says, we're to say amen to. But when we agree, friends, that our obligation is not to allow our emotions to determine what is true... We can sometimes make the mistake of thinking that that means, therefore, we're not to allow the truth to determine our emotions, which is precisely the opposite. When we're coming to this question, we need to look accurately, faithfully at what God has to say, and then we need to, hearing what God has to say, we need to be changed not only in our minds, but in our hearts. When we come to believe what the Bible teaches, it affects all that we are. We will not then, therefore, affirm a view of God where when we go through suffering, he's frustrated, that God is sad. Indeed, we will remember what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, verse 5, when describing what God's condition is. We read these words. Of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Paul describes God here as eternally blessed. Friends, if you've ever heard someone on the radio or on television or on a, a podcast of some sort talking about God you know before the creation of the world and there was God and He was, he was sad and He was lonely and he, he had this need for companionship and that's why He made the world and that's why He made you because you complete Him. That's not what Romans 9 says. Romans 9 reminds us that before there was anything, Jesus Christ was eternally blessed. Before there was anything, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit enjoyed a perfect felicity, an absolute joy and satisfaction, and they enjoy it, friends, immutably so. Which must mean, must it not, that when it comes to suffering, while God is sovereign over it, the experience of it, well, that's something we're on our own with, isn't it? I didn't learn how wrong that was until it was too late. It was February 11th, 19, excuse me, 2011, when we received word from the doctor that the explanation for my wife's constantly dropping white blood counts was that she had acute myeloid leukemia. And from February 11th until December 18th of that same year, my wife valiantly and faithfully fought to stay with us. And I understood from the beginning that while God would not allow me to take on this burden specifically, that that my burden, my calling, was to provide strength and to provide encouragement and to provide wisdom and to provide comfort to my wife as she fought the good fight. And immediately I made a determination in my mind. I thought, you know… I'm going to be tempted. I mean, this was a blow. This was not good news we wanted to hear. And there's going to be more tests, and there's going to be more this, there's going to be more that, and I'm going to have information that I have to deliver to her. If I'm going to be able to comfort her, one thing is necessary first. Before I say anything, I need her to know that whatever I say will be the truth. That comforting lies fail, not only in terms of the truth, but in terms of the comfort. I had to tell her the truth, and I had, her to, I had to have her know I would tell her the truth. And so I told her. I said, Dear, I want you to know that our Lord He's a man well acquainted with sorrow. God's Word says that. He's well acquainted with sorrow. I want you to know, dear, that that the promise of God is that Jesus will go with you wherever you go. You may feel alone, but that feeling is false because Jesus is with you. I reminded her that on Calvary, the suffering that Jesus experienced utterly and completely overshadowed her own suffering. Jesus, dear, has been through even worse. He, of course, understands because he's been through worse. The one thing I wanted to tell her, the one thing I was afraid to tell her, the one thing I couldn't tell her because I had to tell her the truth, I couldn't tell her, you know dear, Jesus has been through precisely what you are going through, which is where I got it wrong. which is how I failed her. Beloved, the Bible teaches with great clarity and passion that we are, in fact, in union with Christ, that Christ is, in fact, in union with His Father. If we were to flip back just a few chapters from John 20 to John 17 where we have Jesus' high priestly prayer, that is the very epicenter of that prayer the affirmation of the union of the Father with the Son, the affirmation of our union with the Son as well. Glorious truth that answers this question if we let it. Because what we do, when we talk about our union with Christ, what we tend to do is we tend to think That what this is telling us, when the Bible says we're one with Christ, it's just another way of talking about the glorious truth of the vicarious substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. That union with Christ means that he suffered the wrath of the Father for our sins. Union with Christ means that we receive the reward that he receives for his obedience. That there's a double imputation going on. Beloved, these are glorious, biblical, gospel truths that we have to cling to. But they're not the fullness what it means to be in union with Christ, that glorious truth is so much more rich, so much more beautiful. Because the reality is what I should have told my wife, when I could have, is that Jesus is not merely walking beside you, but that Jesus is in fact going through exactly what you're going through because He is one with you. His empathy is more real, more potent, than we'll ever begin to understand. I should have told her. We know this is true, because of what happened once with a very profoundly sinful man. You remember that Saul of Tarsus was on his donkey traveling to Damascus with the express purpose of exposing and putting to death the Christians in that town. And you remember that this great light shone from the sky and Saul is thrown to the ground and he hears a voice from heaven crying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me Jesus the eternally blessed God Jesus exalted and sitting at the right hand of the Father Jesus in another dimension in heaven itself accurately faithfully and truthfully describes himself as being persecuted by Saul. Jesus identifies with his bride not in a merely forensic way, though he does that, but he is one with his bride. God does not, friends, in the face of our suffering, as some out there would have us believe, wring his hands and weep, wishing that there was something he could do. But instead, he takes us in his hands, weeping, because he feels our sorrow. God is not too weak to do something about our suffering. But neither is he too strong to care, to walk, or rather to limp with us. We are one with him. But there's another side to that glorious coin. We are one with him. Turn with me, if you would, Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, because we're in union with Christ, beloved, Christ is here with us when we suffer. Because we're in union with Christ, beloved, we're with Him, high and exalted and lifted up. who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I know this text is not shocking to any of you, is it? You've all heard of it. You know that Ephesians 2 is right there between Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. I suspect you've all read it before. The question is, do you believe it? Well, you all believe the Bible is the Word of God, right? And you know this is in the Bible, so therefore you believe it. But we don't. What we do is we change it. Paul says he made us alive, he raised us up together, and made us to sit together with Christ in the heavenly places. Here's what I believed when I read this text. I read this text, believing the Bible is the Word of God, and I believed that when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he did indeed make us alive together with Christ, because by grace I have been saved. And he will raise us up together. And he will make us sit together with him in the heavenly places. And boy, howdy, won't that be a great day. That's what I believed. And it's actually somewhere in the general neighborhood of what the text says. But the text says, he did this. It's done. It's past. It's now. Am I really seated with Christ in the heavenly places? Feels an awful lot like Bloomington. This is not the field of dreams. I'm not going to ask you all, is this heaven? I said, no, it's Indiana. <laughs> Beloved, this is not overstated poetry. This is not metaphor that we can dismiss because we're more sophisticated and modern. This is the Word of God. And when we turn it into metaphor, when we translate it into something reasonable, when we think, well, yes, one day we will be seated in the heavenly places, what we're doing is what the Bible calls living by sight. The Bible calls you to stop believing your eyes and start believing what God says. God says we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. When the tests and the results and everything just started going south, my wife's illness, By God's grace, she remained quite confident where she was going. She was fearful, but not for herself. She was fearful for me and for our eight children. And then that fear, she kind of put me in something of a bind. You remember that promise, I'm going to tell her the truth. And She would say to me, You know, I'm, I'm fine, but what about you guys? How are you going to manage? How are you and the kids going to manage?" And I, I couldn't very well say to her, "'Ah, don't worry about it. Don't worry your pretty little head. We'll be fine." That would be rather hurtful to her, but it would also not fool her. It would be a lie, a horrible lie. But there's not much comfort in me saying to her instead, "'Well, you know, you're right. You're going to heaven, and we're going to be left here, and it's going to be awful for us, and just where do you think you're going, young lady? (laughs) So I tried to find a balance. I tried to tell her some of what I'm trying to tell you, to explain to her that we can mourn, and we can have joy. That joy is not happiness. Happiness is when circumstances work out the way you like. Like, say, last week, if Wichita State had lost then instead of yesterday, that would have been a happy happenstance for many of you. Joy is not circumstances have worked out the way I liked. Joy is the settled conviction that your heavenly Father loves you with a perfect, omnipotent, immutable Love. Losing my wife doesn't change that. You can have joy, and you can mourn. But you know, I came to understand that I didn't understand much about mourning. I came to understand that When God says two are made one flesh, that's not another metaphor. That's a reality. And that when you tear asunder that which has been made one flesh, it's not like this is one hand and we separate it. If I were to separate these two hands, I have a guess you might know how that separation is going to go through, right? You can tell where the line is. Even if I did this, you're not going to think that if I pull apart, I'm going to lose my hand right here pull these apart they're going to come apart like you would expect but when you're one flesh you are one flesh you're not two flesh very close together you are one flesh i came to understand when she was gone that all sorts of gifts and abilities that i thought i had were hers and she took them with her I came to understand that my wife wasn't a crutch for me helping me to walk, but she was a wheelchair carrying me. And so I mourned because my better half was gone. But I came to understand, friends, what it was that made us one flesh. See, the world will tell you that if you want to have a great marriage, if you want to become one, you need to die. This is the world. You die to yourself, and you commit yourself to your spouse. And if they will die to themselves, and they commit themselves to you, then you will become one flesh. And that sounds really nice. And maybe that's better than other options out there in the world, but that's not what we're called to. When I stood... And made my vows. I did not vow that I would give up everything for my wife. I vowed that I'd give up everything for Jesus. She didn't vow that she'd give up everything for me, but that she would give up everything for Jesus which is why we had engraved on the inside of our wedding bands Joshua 24, 15. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What makes us one is not our union with each other, but that I, by God's grace, have been made one with Christ. She, by God's grace, has been made one with Christ. And so, in Christ because she still is in Christ and I still am in Christ, we're still one flesh. I don't want to upset anybody in saying this. I want to be perfectly clear. The Bible is 100% clear. There's no no question about this question. That when you become a widow or you become a widower, God gives you absolute freedom to marry again. Tim was concerned this morning that, am I having all sorts of single women thrown at me? There may be friends who are trying, but the women are escaping. <laughs> and I said, you know, I'm, I, I'm not ruling out the possibility of remarrying, but I said, I'm not thinking in those terms still because I'm married. I have a wife. She's in heaven. And because I am in Christ, seated with him, so am I. My better half is in heaven, seated with him in the heavenly places, as am I. My eyes can't see it. My hands can't touch it. But God says it. The God who's sovereign over our suffering is also sovereign over our blessings. Which is why he lifts me up into the heavenly places where I am seated beside my king, my Lord Jesus. And where I'm seated beside my queen, my beloved wife. Finally, friends, to our text. Because we are one, it is more painful than we can know. Because we are one, we remain one. But I want us to understand that there's more to it. I want us to understand that not only are we seated with Christ in the heavenly places, I want us to understand something about this Christ who was seated in the heavenly places. Remember that Jesus has just been raised from the dead. And when Jesus is raised from the dead, this is not merely he was dead and now he's alive. His experience was profoundly different from the experience of Lazarus. Lazarus was dead and he was made alive and then what happened? He died again. Jesus doesn't walk out a man who's been raised from the dead. Jesus walks out of the tomb the new man. He walks out of the tomb. The scripture describes him as the firstborn of the new creation. Jesus has entered into the fullness of the end of all things. For you theology wonks, he has left the not yet, and he lives in the already. I've described resurrection morning as the third day of thermodynamics, that up until this moment, from the moment Adam and Eve disobeyed their Maker and their Father, the entirety of the universe was breaking down, decomposing, groaning, getting worse and worse and worse. And now the second Adam, having succeeded where the first Adam failed, having passed his test, walks out into the garden, into the new garden, the new Adam, having succeeded, and he begins the business of bringing all things into subjection. Glorious gospel truth. But there's something odd here. This Jesus, given a resurrection body, being the new man, entering into eternity, this Jesus invites in our text Thomas to touch his wounds. His wounds. I mean, we know where they came from. The question is, why are they still there? He was dead. And now he's alive. Everything's fixed. It's all better. But he has wounds. Why is that? Isn't it just possible, friends, that eternity isn't about the disappearance of wounds, but about their transformation? What if suffering and pain in heaven don't disappear? What if they're not swept under the rug like something shameful and dirty? But what if instead, What if instead they're the very beauty of heaven? What if the tears that he has placed in his bottle, because they are also the tears of Jesus, what if these are the waters that compose the river that flows through the celestial city? What if we do not so much trade ashes for beauty What if our ashes become the very crown of glory? Beloved, we will see the wounds of Christ in heaven. And we will rejoice for their beauty. There's no question about that. They're right here in our text. But even more astonishing, what if our wounds in turn Beautify eternity, remembering that our wounds are His wounds. When my wife was called home, and later when my daughter was called home, at the advice of a friend, I gave myself over to 40 days of mourning. I knew there was nothing magic in the number, I knew that on day 41 I wasn't going to be my old self. But I wanted to focus, I wanted to enter in, I wanted to not allow distractions to take me away from this morning. And each time I was surprised because as those days drew to a close, as it became day 37, as it became day 38 and 39, I began to feel anxious. Not happy, not excited, not relieved, but anxious because I didn't want to give it up. Because of the beauty of sorrow. Beloved, this is our Father's world. The reason the world doesn't understand suffering is because they think it's their world. Even in the evangelical church. Lord, did you not make all things for me? And yet, I'm not satisfied. So surely you have done something wrong. I'm confused here. And we don't have that perspective. This is God's world. And we know that his goal, his purposes, that what he's doing is he is about the business of weaving a tapestry designed with one ultimate purpose, to show forth his glory, to manifest his beauty. And he could have done that without sorrow and without pain. He could have ordained from all eternity that Adam and Eve would do exactly as they were told, that having done what they were told, they would go on and have children who would do what they were told, and there would be no sickness, and there would be no death, and and it would have been wonderful. But it would not have been the story God wanted to tell it wouldn't have been the tapestry he wanted to create. He could have sung a song with only upbeat, sharp notes. But he chose this story. And in this story, for me, in the last year and a half, In the song that he has sung in my life for the last year and a half, he's been playing the minor keys of Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor, the dark and the heavy and the somber notes. But it's not the end of the song. It's not the end of the song, the music is beautiful because the complexity becomes harmonized. Because the tension is released. And where this dark music is leading to is what's happening right now where we're seated. Because we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. Because this morning we have lifted up our hearts into the true and eternal Mount Zion where we, the church militant, are made one with the church triumphant and where we join together with the heavenly host as they sing the glorious eternal truth that he shall reign forever and ever. Alleluia. Hallelujah. And as that song is played, Jesus is dancing with my wife and my daughter. This morning, you've been invited to this same feast. This morning, you've been commanded to come to the dance. And the master of the dance has set before us to strengthen us, to give us eyes to see food indeed and drink indeed. Come and eat his flesh, drink his blood, so that we might dance his dance. For he is the Lord of the dance. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, Forgive our ingratitude and our dull ears and our hard hearts. Father, we beseech that you would not give us more, save that you would give us the eyes and the ears and the hearts to just begin to grasp all that you have given us. Father, may we hear the very music of heaven, may we join that heavenly chorus, and may we rejoice today, that we with him, but that he shall reign forever and ever. For we ask it in his precious and powerful name, amen.